Welcome back to the Ask Different Podcast. This is episode number 22, recorded January 25th, 2012. I'm Kyle Cronin. I'm Jason Salas. I'm Nathan Greenstein. And I'm Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Hello. What's going on? Happy to be here, although I have to admit, I just started zoning out. I heard the intro and figured I was just listening to the podcast again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, we are glad to have you here. You are a very active and dedicated member of the site, and uh, we thought it was only, only fitting to have you on the Ask Different podcast. So, welcome. Thank you very much. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> and just this week, he also became number the number 10 user by rep on Ask Different, as a matter of fact. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Well, thank you. There's a lot of good people out there. I'm still, I'm still wet, like fourth or something, but I, I, I don't participate as much as I used to and as much as I really would like to, unfortunately. But uh, I guess that's that's life. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we have these other people sort of coming up, The you know, your... Uh, your your gent mics and gent mats. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, gent Matt. Um, and your uh, Matt Love and a lot of mats, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, it, it is interesting. It, it is really really uh, exciting to you, you know ha- have been working on and and, and trying to build a, an audience and a community for the site and to see it actually you know, growing and, and seeing these, that these people are coming and participating and enjoying the time on the site. That's, I realize that a lot of the credit goes to stack exchange, but I think that I, I, at least I hope that there was at least something, some part of that, that I I was able to contribute. We wouldn't be doing this if you didn't put in the area 51 uh, suggestion. That's true. You have quite a history with this site going way back. Yeah. Um, I, I originally proposed it on the Meta Stack Exchange uh, Meta site for the Stack Exchange 1.0, and then I transferred it over to Area 51 when that was created. Did kind of a lot of pushing trying to get people to commit to the proposal, which I, I, I think that the Area 51 process is actually a really it, it's really hard to get people that are not Stack Exchange insiders to understand what that is you know you say all right well you got to go here and you got to follow the proposal and you got to vote on these sample questions and they're like what you know i I mean i can't answer these questions i can't ask questions i just just have to look at these sample questions and what (laughs) uh so it was really hard pushing it through um commitment and um definition phases of a very 51 um and in a lot of ways it's it's kind of been (laughs) easier since um, that whole process is probably pretty well by design because their their theory is that the champions of the site, the people that are really going to spearhead it, are going to come from somewhere else on Stack Exchange already. That that is absolutely true, and I think that so, uh, it, a lot of topics that um, may make good Stack Exchange Q and A sites um, really depend on being able to have that core audience, and if that core audience is already on Stack Exchange albeit on a different site, then at least you have something to start with. Like I propose the economics stack exchange site because I have a a friend that's a a grad student in economics and he's like, Oh, you know, uh, I've been hearing about this math overflow and it's really cool. And I'm like, well, stack exchange has something where if enough people are interested, they can visit and, and, 
and and go through these these definition phases and and actually create a, a site for economics. And so I I proposed it. I I tried to get him to get other people interested in the site, and eventually it sort of took a long time. I think it was like a year, but it eventually sort of snowballed into an actual beta site. And unfortunately, uh, it just does not seem to have done that well. Um, the, 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 my friend, the, the grad student, he has an account, he, but he was only there like one day. And I, I think it was one of those things where uh, you have all these people show up and there's nothing there. And then they all leave because there was nothing there. Instead of these people wanting to take an active role in, in the uh, sort of formation of the early part of the, uh, of the community. That's what we call the chicken and the egg problem. <laughs> you know, what's interesting about this is I feel like I'm in a time warp because, um, God, would it be about 10 years ago? Would it be 10 years ago? No, more like 15 years ago. Wow. I was pretty involved in uh, Usenet, which, um, <laughs> for those listeners who don't remember Usenet, um, you know, was a, a distributed um, communication uh, system, sort of bulletin board-esque. And um, I was very involved in the news.groups process, the process of forming new groups, which is kind of similar to this Area 51, actually. And that was always, you know, we were always trying to evaluate, is there going to be enough traffic to generate worthwhile discussion for a particular topic? And we, the big thing was we were always very skeptical of the if you build it they will come or the field of dreams plan where people assume that if the site is created it's going to automatically attract traffic and so we were always you know trying to evaluate is this particular proposal going to actually have a core group of participants that make it worth creating a group or not but that was another lifetime ago practically it seems the really funny thing is though that's still going on and having worked for a usenet provider that's something that i saw pretty regularly and even in just kind of general discussion threads, it's it's the whole thing like every forum and everything else nowadays where people will complain endlessly about those in power. Oh, they're they're biased, they're they're doing they're they're taking their opinion and not considering the rest of the logical conclusions. And these are these are people that, that people have gone through the same process in creating websites and creating blogs and um even podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh, the head of um the community management team uh robert cartano was pretty big in the in the usenet sphere um i think he used to run several man i don't even know what the terminology is servers something News news groups i guess and that was in no small part why stack exchange recruited him and and hired him is because he he had experience with building internet communities and I mean, I think he's done a pretty good job, kind of making sure that these these sites that are coming through the the beta process that, well, if they're really not getting enough momentum, if they're sort of piddling along and getting you know one new commit every two weeks or something like that, then uh, it's possible that a lot of those people that made those early commits are long gone or have long forgotten or have gone to other things, and I, I kind of think that maybe. I like that the economic site was created, but I'm kind of thinking that maybe it was, it just did not have enough actual support. Now, I mean, things could turn around. Who knows? Um, Maybe some economic students or uh, professors or whatever will, will decide to really invest in the site and, and, 
uh, turn things around. Um, but it seems that at least the people that did commit to the site, um, most of them haven't necessarily followed through. Yeah. And so switching gears a little bit to ask different, enough um, about sites that didn't make it. Right. Here's one that has, <laughs> yes, we are, we are awesome. Actually, our, our traffic has been growing quite impressively over the past year or so. I think we started out with like what around 5k when we graduated and now we're somewhere around 38k. So we're, it's over seven times what we had a year ago, which is fantastic. We're up um, to 12,211 questions as of the time of this podcast. Sweet. Nice. People like asking questions and answering questions. I, I, I like that. And yeah, I mentioned a year ago because that was actually when our site graduated, going from a public beta into an actual full-fledged site with a design and that sort of stuff. Uh, and that's, that's coming up on the, it's the 28th, right? Right. 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 So what are we, what are we thinking about doing for that or around then? In that, in that uh, time frame, probably not on the 28th. That's a little getting a little late for that, but around that time, we're thinking of doing a big cleanup effort of the site. And so to figure out which questions we're interested in actually working on, we're going to get our little army of flaggers to go around and choose which questions we should just get rid of. Ones where maybe the original poster didn't provide all the information that we need and has not come back to add that info. We can just close those questions. So that's part of the cleanup effort. But then the uh, the second, the bigger part of that is answering and cleaning up the, the old unanswered questions. Because really, the question's not super useful unless it's got a good answer. And if we've got hundreds and hundreds of questions that are good questions and are high quality, but that no one's been able to answer, and then they've just kind of fallen to the back of the site because they're old, then we want to push those to the front and get them answered. And ultimately just have a cleaner, cleaner site with less junk and more of the good stuff complete with answers. Yeah, well, it's it's important to sort of identify the two phases or the two sections of the lifetime of a question. Um, there's the time when, when a question is first asked and the, the, there's a person that actually needs the answer to the question. And then there are people that go in and they post various potential answers. And then one, and then either one or, or more or a combination of, of them are then, then help the, the, uh, the, the asker. And then they, they, they select the one that they, uh, that help them the most and then upvote others that help them. And so that's kind of the primary that's the first part of the life of a question is when uh, it's the purpose of the question is to help the person to ask the question. But then also part of the rather the, the, the genius part of Stack Exchange is they take this thing that now that now, I mean, the asker already has the, the information, so they're all set. But they take this thing that has this nugget of useful information or a set of troubleshooting steps or or very solutions to this problem and then they try to make this uh, easily accessible to people that also have this problem in the future. So you can search on Google, you can search on the site. And so what we're, what we're doing is we're trying to take questions where an appropriate amount of time has passed so that they're now in the cleanup phase, uh, a phase where we kind of remove some things that don't need to be there 
for the question to be useful to for other people searching for the answer. So if if there is some specific thing for for a particular person or if the if if the answers are really written in a really specific way, um, we're we're looking to try to generalize the question, generalize the answers, uh, get rid of anything that might be a little too localized, and that's kind of the thrust behind the the cleanup. It's removing questions that do not have any lasting value. It's editing questions that do have lasting value to sort of polish them and make sure that they are easily found via search engines and and they're all written well and stuff like that. So that's what we're hopefully going to be working towards. And we'll have, we'll have more information about that um, in the coming weeks. It's interesting that you say that um, because I was talking to my brother about stack exchange, sort of making reference to, you know, what it was. And he said, Oh yeah, I've never actually used its interface. I've just, but, but a lot of times I've done a Google search on something and it's the first thing that's come up. So I visited that site, but I've never actually, you know, looked for anything through the stack exchange interface, just through a search engine. That's actually very, very common. About 95% of the traffic on ask different comes from Google. So that 38,000 visits per day that we get, um, most of those people are coming in from Google or Bing or whatever, most, mostly Google. And so it's really important to try to optimize for that as well. I mean, obviously, we're not going to say that, okay, you know, this question is now two hours old. <laughs> we're going to remove any extraneous information. We're going to delete all, all nonsensical answers, and then we're going to preserve it for history that, no, well, two hours is a little soon. But if the question's, you know, a month old, two months old, six months old, a year old, we can we can take these things that have completely served their purpose for the person that asked the question and make them serve an additional purpose for people that are trying to find the answer on Google. So uh, that that is a goal that we have, and that is definitely one of the core fundamental principles of Stack Exchange. And it's something that most of the time, when a question's asked, if it's asked well, it can sort of automatically serve both um, uh, by default. But sometimes you get those questions that come through where you, you don't necessarily want to close it or, or or whatever because you know that this person is they're they're really interested in a specific answer and they need an answer and someone may be able to provide it. But at the same time, it's not really going to serve a more general audience, and so. Uh, once those questions have fulfilled their purpose for the the asker, which uh, we, we you know we say, is there a way to generalize this, or if there isn't, maybe we should um, cull it in some capacity. I'm not saying delete it. I'm just sort of saying maybe there's some way we can make the other questions stand out more. I guess we talked about this more in depth about the fact that uh, Stack Exchange is. Is intended to have all of its uh, all of its traffic coming in from these, uh, you know, similar enough search queries. Uh, we've we've given the examples before about how when you don't know the answer to the question, but you're curious about what it is, so you search for it. If the question was asked within an hour, you can turn around and search a similar phrase and see the question on Google. Both kind of a good and a bad thing, but you know, it's it's interesting to see it so quickly, nonetheless. Uh, I actually had a pretty a pretty interesting experience recently about how I was curious to know how to use the the large type function from the address book, 
And so I just started with a general Google search. And I got taken to a question on Ask Different, of course. And the comment on the question itself was from me. And I said, wow, this is an insanely good question, meaning I would really like to know an answer. Um, in my case, the, the unfortunate thing is that the answers require using either Quicksilver or LaunchBar, neither of which I do anymore. So I opened up a second question that said, how do I access large type without leveraging any third-party application? Because in theory, it is a core part of macOS, and uh, we're still waiting to, I, I'm still waiting to find a satisfactory answer, and I'm still looking to try to figure one out myself. It's annoyingly undocumented, though. <laughs> yeah, I've been poking around. I haven't been able to find an answer to your question either, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. But. And there's not any, even any other applications that use that function, which is well, not it's, um, so much of a surprise. I think, anyway, that it's the same the same um, system service that's used by when you change the volume, that little bevel that comes up. And in uh, an Xcode, Xcode's the only app I think I've seen that implements these custom... Um, yeah, with the build notices. WIs, yeah, with the build successful notices. Mm -hmm. Which is apparently open to developers, but completely undocumented, as far as I can tell. iTunes has a new notification thing that you can turn on um, in the dock so that it can show you what track is playing, and you get this little cool little bubbly thing that pops out. Um, and now I can't think of what I did to turn that on because it wasn't enabled by default, but... That's, it was a it was a defaults command from the terminal a uh, a hidden plist preference. Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. And then I get these neat little notifications that pop up and tell me what track just came on and that sort of thing. Yeah, there's there's two principal notifications format right now uh, formats right now, and that's of course the the bezel the bevel style that Nathan was talking about specifically, and then the the de facto third party standard is of course growl. And anything that's, as mo as many people call toaster-style pop-ups or just generally the upper right-hand side uh, balloon announcement, so to speak. Just off the uh, the iTunes notification thing, I think that's great. And if I still used iTunes, I would definitely enable that. But <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that when I switched to Spotify was just, wow, that's smart. Why hasn't anybody else done this? When it's, it's just the notification when you play a new track or when the track automatically advances – it shows a growl notification with the name and the artist and the artwork. And I had not wanted that before. I didn't know that I wanted it. But suddenly, whoa, why hasn't anybody done this? Wait, doesn't so growl do that for uh, iTunes, though? I'm sure you can configure it. I just hadn't used it. Yeah, You have and, to install a specific growl for iTunes plugin. Makes sense oh. that you can. But, oh, yeah. And I'm, I'm just wondering if Apple is... Notifications is one of the areas where... We've seen a lot of change in Mac OS X, but there's also a lot of room for change. And it's, it's I'm, 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 I'm hoping that they're paying some attention to, to things like Growl and to things like Push on iOS. And it seems like we're, we're seeing the, the groundwork for something like that with the, the same, the iOS-style uh, number badges on, on apps icons in the dock and with... Uh, with them adding this iTunes thing, and so I'm, I'm hoping to see kind of a more a more core notifications thing because I think a lot of developers are hesitant to put in Growl stuff because they're still going to need to implement their own thing because not every, as a fallback. But I, I don't know. This is probably something I care more about than most people, or at least it strikes me as that kind of thing. But I really hope that 
that we see some progress there. That's actually starting to change, and this is, this is definitely something to to spend to dedicate more time on on another episode. But I will say briefly: uh, one, we are seeing some pretty dramatic notification changes in desktop Mac, principally by this iTunes notification medium um, instead of just you know standard modal or application modal pop up dialogues. Um, but as of Growl one three, if you use the Growl SDK, you can use you can register with Growl and send notifications that way. Uh, or there's a framework for just generating an arbitrary growl style notification that doesn't require that doesn't require the growl daemon to be running. Um, mm. If you update to growl one three via the Mac App Store, uh, there are certain applications that won't work with it. Uh, Skype being the chief example, considering we're using that right now. Uh, and if you if you pay enough attention, the notification is just dif- is just different enough that you can tell that it's not Growl. There are a lot of applications that implement that kind of a fallback that do their own notification system, but Growl is very quickly making inroads to do something better so that you don't have to depend on this application. And we may just see that Apple brings something out on its own that that can be leveraged by applications straight out of the gate for users that have actually updated to the OS that supports it, of course. So did you guys see that uh, the the announcements Apple made for the uh, the education event? Definitely. No, never heard of them. Wait, no, that's the topic we're talking about here. Yes. (laughs) Well, that was a short show. Uh, So our our main topic for today uh, is technology and education and uh, part of that is sort of spurned on by the event that apple held last week where they released basically three things uh the first is digital textbooks in the ibook store uh, requires ibooks to um the ibooks author app to make these beautiful textbooks uh, that's a mac app on the mac app store free and Free, yes, and iTunes U, which is sort of they've created iOS apps and they've sort of beefed up uh, the kinds of things that can be put in there. So it's not just a podcast of lectures; it's actually a lot of material as well. And so this is kind of uh, this is a bit of a um, bolder strategy in education than they've had. Uh, in recent years, and I was just sort of didn't didn't know if maybe if we could get your take on this, Daniel. Um, okay, well, why don't we take this on piece by piece because it's an awful lot to just get a take on. Yeah, all sorry, at once. I kind of. <laughs> um, where should we start? Well, why don't we start with um, the digital textbooks? Ooh, all right, all right. We could start by talking about this uh, this iTunes auth- this iBooks author program, which I have downloaded and checked out, and uh, it's kind of interesting. And of course, there's been the uh, kerfuffle about the uh, EULA for it that seems to uh, have attracted a fair bit of attention. But um, it's a pretty neat piece of software, all in all. Um, reminds me a lot of Pages or um, Keynote, which you know has some nice carryovers in terms of if you've learned how to use one of them, it tends to have the same look and feel. Um, and I've been thinking it'd be kind of a neat thing to do to put together to, to, to um, put together material and put it in a beautiful format and mix in, you know, multimedia presentations and that sort of thing. And um, looks like, looks like a good tool, but um, there is this um, proviso in the end-user license agreement that says that if you sell the products that you create from it, you're, 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 um, 
you need to sell them through the um, through the iTunes store. Uh, you can't, uh, you know, say make a product with this and then sell it, you know, via Kindle, for example. And um, that's, you know, it's been uh, some people have been concerned about that, but that's uh, in the license agreement there. Um, Important note, if you charge a fee for any book or other work you generate using this software, you may only sell or distribute such work through Apple, i.e. through the iBookstore, and such distribution will be subject to a separate agreement with Apple. So that's just sort of, you know, worth uh, keeping in mind. Right, yeah. So the app is free if you if free is in quotation marks. Like, you can use it, I guess, but <laughs> either you're going to distribute the stuff for free or... Uh, we're gonna need, we're gonna need to control the distribution and take a cut. Yeah, it's free. Um, you know, as they say, it's free like free beer. It's not free like Richard Stallman or however that goes. Right, right. But I mean, it's even less free than say Xcode, where you can download Xcode for free. You can create an app, a Mac app, and you can sell that app directly to other people. You don't need to go through Apple or anything like that. I think. It would be actually kind of scary if at some point in the future Apple said, look, if you're going to develop an app in Xcode and you're going to try to sell it, it has to be through the Mac App Store or the iOS Store. It can't be on your random website. And then we're going to take a cut of that. Is that something that maybe you think Apple might be doing in the future? I don't see how they really could because a lot of what I've read recently is talk about the fact that iBook author... Uh, iBooks author does let you export to the non-dedicated iBook uh, format. So if you actually take, if you use that publishing tool and you export to a standard EPUB or a PDF, no harm, no foul. Uh, that, that that's something that everybody else can use. But right, it's but only when you it. use all of these. I I that's that's really an unenforceable clause to me. Uh, if if that's what that license means, it's a worthless provision. Because unless there's some PDF, uh, or unless there's some DRM on top of the PDF that I haven't heard about, having not actually exported something myself yet, that's that's not something that they can feasibly enforce at well, all. They're not they're not going to go after you, you know, you know, Jason's, you know, book bonanza. Um, they're they're going to go after these kind of semi um, major publishers that if if for some reason. Um, pick a random publisher o'reilly decides hey we're going to create these really great interactive versions of our programming books but 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 the interactivity is only the ibooks format you do not have that kind of interactivity with epub or pdf period okay all right fine let's suppose that they decided to make it in i i don't actually i don't even think that you can export with epub with the ibooks author it's either you get the iBooks thing or you get a PDF. It's like one or the other. Um, but even assuming that that was the case, that you could do that, Apple would say, no, no, you have to distribute those through the iBook store. You will not be able to, say, for example, sell a $5 ebook e- upgrade for existing books like O'Reilly does for their, for their books um, and distribute it in the iBooks format. And the other thing I saw is that the uh, the... The interactivity part, everybody thought it was HTML5, but somebody did a teardown, and it, apparently it's just custom attributes on the HTML part of the, uh, or the XML, I guess, of the EPUB. So, because iBooks format is a, a packaged EPUB. And so it's, it's, uh, it depends on 
the app. It's it's the iBooks app that adds the interactivity and not something in the actual file. So unless Apple was to either license that uh, that in part of their SDK or some other way, then any any interactivity that's carried over in another EPUB format would be reverse engineered. Yeah, and that that's not that's not outside of the realm of possibility. And I, I it would not surprise me to see some third party app not sold in the Mac App Store for very obvious reasons, supporting very prominently that hey, we can read iBooks format uh, book files as well. Um, but it's I I just don't really foresee this company that chooses uh, O'Reilly, A-Press, Pragmatic, anybody, if they choose to release their stuff in PDF authored by iBooks author, I don't see, one, how Apple could know, two, why they would make the choice to have litigation in that form. Um, and I, I, it's really hard to substantiate. I just don't feel it's going to happen. I mean, their, their, their bread and butter is their special format and special features and things that they're going to provide as significant value to people buying books designed in that format. Well, but if, if you're going to export this old PDF, whatever. Well, I mean, if Apple says that you can't do, if you can't, if Apple says you can't sell the PDF, um, O'Reilly or any publisher is not going to play legal chicken and say, well, ha ha, you know, we're going to do it anyway. And we're pretty sure Apple can't prove a thing. This is not how companies roll. <laughs> They're very risk averse. And they'll say, look, you know, this, their lawyers will say, look, you can't, you can't touch this with a ten foot pole um, because we're not going to be selling through the ebook store, and they'll just tell their uh, the, the people that are actually um, putting the content together to use something else. And there probably will be something else that will be a perfect cross platform whatever um, solution that offers many of the same functionality of of the iBooks um, format. Um, but I think that a lot of this is, you know, I. I think that this is not really the thing to talk about when we're talking about these these digital textbooks. I think the Bef- important thing is how do these affect education? Before we pass on to a different topic, can I just ask one more question? Sure. D- does the iBook store even sell straight PDFs? Does anything from Apple sell just a PDF? No. Exactly. <laughs> the if iBooks author exports PDF, Apple has no medium to sell that to the user anyways they have this entire setup built around their special format but that doesn't matter if it's generated by the app then it's considered to be under those licensing terms that apple provided the app you know here's my biggest concern about this i'm coming at this as an educator here okay i could see this being a really cool way to put together a lot of you know, let's say I've got some course material that I want to put together, and I've got some graphs that I've m- built using, say, OmniGraph Sketcher, and I've got so- some material that I've written. I put it all together in this really cool ebook, and I want to make it available to my students. And so I know that some of my students, and this semester is the first time I've really seen this start to take off, some of my semester students are using various e-readers. And so, you know, if some of them were using iPads and I wanted to make it available to them, I could do that for free, right? But right. then I've got a bunch of students that, you know, wouldn't come close to using any of this kind of technological stuff. So if I wanted to print copies of it, and but you know it costs money to photocopy them, so I want to charge them just for you know the cost of photocopying it. According to the license here, I either have to give it away for free or I have to sell it through Apple. I can't charge for printed bound copies of the material if I make the e-version of it using e-books and then I make printouts of the same thing. 
that's breaking the license. And that that's my biggest concern about it, frankly. Not that I think they're going to crack down on it, but I'd hate to get into trouble for it, too. And that's, you know, my biggest reservation about putting my material into this format is, is it locked in then? And for, if I'm trying to make paper copies, could we charge to, uh, to recoup the cost of that? And the answer appears to be, according to the license, no. You could give away the PDF version and then, I don't know, a lot of schools have like, um, like a print quota, like students can print a certain amount um per semester um on like school printers i don't know it's a tough situation you're right because on the one hand that is technically against the license um uh, but as jason said there is a absolutely no way to actually enforce that and i mean there there's there's just no way to enforce that you're charging for printed copies of something there's it's just you're think- beyond the realm of the technological there Absolutely, it's not a technological, you know, enforcement provision. But at the same time, you know, I, I mean, I'm a public employee, and so at least in theory, I'm supposed to probably be following the law since I work for the government and everything, right? Right. Why not? Um, if you if you know you're going to be using this stuff in advance, um, I mean, there are uh, options to provide like a general kind of um, fee, an additional fee on like on a course. Um, for like additional materials and stuff like that, but I don't. You're right. That that is that is an interesting thing I had not considered. That technically, if you generate a PDF from the uh, from the document and then you print out the PDF and sell copies of that, that that would be selling something that uh, it was in in some way produced by the program. Now the other way to do it would be to do the whole thing in pages, make the P- make the you know make a PDF, make a uh, make a um, a print copy from the PDF, and then if you want to enhance it in iBooks, take the page, import the pages document into iBooks, and add all the upgraded features. But that's just a lot more work, and that's definitely going to uh, discourage me from doing that. You know, I think this is probably this is another example of the fact that Apple lives in a different reality. Uh, they live in a world where every student has an iPad and everyone has really fast internet. Uh, and yeah. to them, they're like, well, you can just give away the PDF for free or you can give away the iBooks thing for free. What's the problem? Yeah, I teach at a community college. And frankly, a number of my students don't have internet and a number of the students who do have internet have dial-up. So, you know, saying, oh, yeah, the PDF's available at the website and it's only a, you know, four megabyte download – well, great. Uh, by the end of the semester, they might be able to get a copy of it. <laughs> it actually, um, I just heard, I don't know, a few days ago, that apparently these textbooks are between like one and two gigabytes in size. These crazy interactive textbooks that are currently available in the iBooks store. Yeah, even the PDF output from iBooks is um, much larger than you would expect for uh, for what the file is. And aside from... People, people producing contents, individual concerns, the individual people producing contents concerns, should say, the, the big publishers are going to be at least as off-put by this license, where if they put something into this app, 
they're not going to necessarily want to only distribute through Apple. And well, that's exactly the reason why Apple created this provision is, is exactly that way. Because otherwise, the publishers would just produce the file with with the program, take it out, and sell it themselves, and and cut out Apple's but I, uh, distribution. I think, Apple, I think Apple should do that and charge for the software if they want if they want that to happen. And well, honestly, I mean, in my opinion. I wrote a thing that, where that apparently that in my opinion that uh, the entire reason behind all of these things is that Apple just wants to sell more iPads. And yeah, I think that the, per- and- the perfect thing for them to do is to a give away the software and B um, do not restrict um, the, the, the distribution of the output. Um, they, they will probably take a hit and that their, their iBook store will not either be as profitable or, or gain in market share, but they will, uh, but if the if the output of this iBooks author program can only be read on iPads, well then someone's going to need to buy an iPad to read it. That's okay. I go to high school, and that's that's really not how things work. That that's as much as as much as Apple would love to believe that that's how things work. It's really not very realistic. If it, it in my school, it's a high school, and this is what they've they've targeted these textbooks for, at least at this point, they're targeted for high school. And some of the textbooks are not the exact books, but the the courses that I'm taking now. If okay, probably probably one one student per class per uh, you know per classroom has an iPad. And almost none of them bring it to school. And I can't think of more than one or two people who would buy an iPad because they can get fancy textbooks on it. Uh, I'm just sort of saying that, uh, again, the, the, the people that Apple is targeting are not the individual people. It's the entire school system. You know, but I say to the school system. So that was oh, going to be my, my second, my second thing. I've been to a lot of different schools in this, uh, this, this grade level range that they're targeting. And again, none of them would buy iPads for all their students. It's just too expensive and, their their curriculum is not integrated enough with that kind of thing that they would be able to justify anywhere near that kind of cost. I I think that part of it is kind of the wow factor. Where imagine a private school, right? All they have to do is increase the tuition by say five hundred dollars a year or whatever per student or whatever, and then they they are granted an iPad. And so, I mean, the school's not out any money because they're just increasing the cost well, of their tuition. And the school's the, out a lot of money because they have to implement it. They've got to. Well, they've gotta all right, fine. Teach their but, teachers, and but this becomes a huge draw. Where I mean, if it is a private school and they're kind of competing for people to go there, especially if it's somewhat selective, um, and 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 people visit the school and they say, "Wow, look, these students are using." iPads to learn. They've got this great interactive textbook, and then they visit another school, and they're using these, you know, these busted old textbooks. I mean, as a high school student, would you rather go to a school where you are issued an iPad or where you have to carry around forty pounds of books a day? Well, I would rather have the iPad, but exactly all of the exactly. schools I've been to would never consider. And these are these are technologically, you know, they 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 accept this computer thing. These are not old fashioned schools. The the school I go to currently. All the kids have laptops, and that the you know they they just have the the uh, parents buy their kids laptops. And well, it, why would why wouldn't why wouldn't you have just have the parents buy the kids iPads? Then? Right. Well, the thing is that, and I, I think I saw this argued on Twitter. You can't really 
be a student with just an iPad. You need you need some kind of a computer to really work. Now, why do you say that? Because my my experience using and I haven't I I fully admit I haven't used iPads for for trying to do anything too long, but really, even with a Bluetooth keyboard, it's a small screen, it's a, a touch screen interface. So you, I, I guess I at least am am less efficient, and frequently it's it just feels a little slower. And a lot of things, or you know, with any luck, this will change. I'm sure Apple would love to see it change. A lot of academic websites require Flash. They're they're just I couldn't do all my schoolwork using an iPad for for well, time right. reasons and for just compatibility. So and, Nathan, you have yeah. you you have a laptop. You bring that to school, right. correct? Uh, but right. you also have a, a, another computer at home, right? Yeah, at, sure. an iMac, and there are computers at the school. No. Just, just no, laptops. Just laptops. All right. Well, all right. So I guess there might have to be a little bit of a change and so that, uh, you know, if people are actually writing papers and they need to maybe add a computer lab or two. Um, yeah. It's actually quite unusual that there's a high school without a computer lab. Oh, yeah. No, um, but then again, <laughs> it's also quite, it's quite uh, unusual that the majority of students or even a significant minority of students would all have laptops. Right. Yeah. I'm just saying that but, imagine that the... Um, that the iPad is just a textbook replacement that yes, obviously you're not going to write papers using your textbook. Um, <laughs> just like you're not going to write papers using your iPad. You're going to do that on a computer, but that's the thing that gets transported with you to school from home from school and that you're going to be using to view all of the material that that's, that's the, that's the scope of it. And that, yes, you'll have a computer at home. There'll be computers at school that you can use to actually get stuff done. I think that's kind of the vision. So so the iPad is just for the textbook reading, you're, you're saying? Right. Textbook okay. reading, interactivity, notes, da-da. I mean, it's obviously not going to replace – you're obviously not going to write a paper on an, on an iPad. Sure. Dis- despite the fact that I did see that Apple video that they posted and – People there was about a second of, of these kids just furiously typing away on their iPads. And I'm like, that's not very realistic because <laughs> y- you, you just have too much of an error. Especially uh, I because they won't be able to read out of the text bo- the textbook and cite at the same time that they read, uh, that, that, that they write the paper. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that um, if you just sort of reduce it to the scope of these things are replacing uh, textbooks. And I still um, can't, I still, I, I cannot see any of the schools I've been to making that move, justifying buying these breakable, losable, expensive devices to replace textbooks, which they can use over and over again, and which everyone's familiar with that don't need any more training. I just don't see it happening yet, and I would love to see it happen. But I, as much as I wish, you know, wishful thinking can't get me far enough that I can actually see any of the schools I've been to making this change. And I, you're right. It doesn't. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense for for cost reasons. But it's just it's new and different. And in high school, new and different doesn't get adopted until it's old and stale. In my experience. <laughs> yeah. No. I mean, we're not going to see you know all the high schools, all all the schools in the country overnight suddenly adopt this program. But I do but, think but, that you are going to see some adopt some aspects of it. 
I did have, for what it's worth, and again, this is just us talking about the state of today. Um, I did have a coworker some time ago that was talking to me about the benefits of an iPad in general and for education, anything else like that. And so I kind of showed him around. I showed him the browser. I think I work for iOS was released, so I may have shown him pages, something along those lines. And he got it uh, for, for his wife, who was in uh, some school institution. I'm actually not sure which grade level, but um, the, he uh, they they collectively used it for a couple of days. His wife used it as the primary device to carry around school for a couple of days. And within a few days, they already said, there's no possible way we can achieve what we need to do here. And they took it back. Uh, and instead, they just got her a uh, small plastic MacBook instead and went with that. And the chief reasons that he mentioned were very similar things that Nathan said. Uh, Flash interface and chiefly the inability for uh, an iPad user to upload some kind of a file, be it written document or anything else, via the the standard web forms that the school school website uses. Yeah, the most telling telling evidence to me that... The, the event was all about Apple selling iPads was the fact that these textbooks can only be used on an iPad. You can't use them on your iPhone. You can't use them on your Mac, even though all of the gestures that they're, that they're showing, you know, pinching stuff popping out and all that could easily be replicated on a multi-touch trackpad on a MacBook. Uh, and of course the, the primary way that you view these textbooks is horizontally, which is the same orientation of a MacBook screen. Uh, and so the, the, you've got this this perfectly capable Apple hardware that can, uh, that, that can display these textbooks uh, does not have the capability of doing so primarily because then Apple would not be able to sell you an iPad or sell a school district an iPad, <laughs> a set of iPads. So I do think that's a big weakness that they have. Yeah, it's It's one of those things that require a very, a very significant infrastructure change and make and changing things quite dramatically from where they are now and that's that's where itunes u also comes in uh that that's where all these new app paradigms come in and just everything else that has been built over the last uh what just about four years now three and a half well i think this is where apple it might be a little bit at odds with what purpose are they trying to accomplish here too because to the extent that they're trying to solidify the iPad as the leading thing, um, and to the extent they're trying to encourage the adoption of e-textbooks in general, they might be slightly at cross-purposes with themselves in terms of, um, you know, to the extent that lock-in is the name of the game, um, they might actually find it a harder sell, but at the same time, lock-in makes it, you know, they become even more the dominant player than they already are, too. And so... Um, you know, to what extent are they trying to penetrate the education market with some of these e-resources? And to what extent are they trying to make it the iPad is the only thing? Um, and I don't know that they necessarily need to play the exclusivity game. If the iPad really is so far ahead of the competition as it is, then the penetration of e-resources might translate into the penetration of the iPad without them having to push lock in so much. But maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe uh, Kindle Fire is going to be coming along and taking over some of that lead. But I, boy, I don't see it. Well, I think it's it's sort of the classic case where, all right, I have a very frugal father where I if I show him an iPad, he's like, well, this is nice, but 
I could just get a Kindle Fire or something like that. Uh, I remember a few years ago when he was shopping for a computer, I was desperately trying to get him to buy uh, a MacBook. And he ended up with a $500 gateway PC because it did everything he needed. You know, I'm doing air quotes. Um, and so I, I'm afraid that what will happen is that if there really are these these cross-platform uh, multi multimedia kind of book interfaces uh that it will be uh that 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 apple is sort of pioneering but they're they're cross-platform that there will be sort of a race to the bottom where you will get this really really bad hardware uh like like a kindle fire um that's sort of sold um under the premise that it does everything that the ipad does and then the children get these in their in their hands and they hate them and then consequently the teachers hate them and then they spend um you know the, the the rest of the year on a car that no one actually touches because they all hate the devices and the school district looks at that and they say wow that was quite a waste of money we guess we're going back to books instead of hmm maybe we should have actually bought the the thing that actually works so i mean yes i i, I in principle i agree that lock in uh, is not that good, but uh, in practice, I think that um, it has more of a chance of succeeding if Apple does sell the entire solution as opposed to just parts of it. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I don't know. I'm just sort of making up stuff here. I do that all the time. <laughs> Isn't that what a podcast is about? <laughs> that is. This is my platform to say anything I want, and that's totally going in the show. <laughs> uh, so daniel i don't know if you saw the other day uh there was a, an article by matt welsh who who is a software engineer at google now but he he for many years he was a computer science professor at harvard and his he had a really interesting article uh titled making universities obsolete and i kind of wanted to get your take on it as as an educator uh because a lot of it sort of attacks the basic the core assumptions about higher education or, or actually education in general. Uh, but it is sort of targeted at higher education. Uh, did you see the article? Yes, I have seen the article. Um, I've taken a look at it. I, I've read it some. I have not read it as thoroughly as, well, if you're going to give me a pop quiz on it, let's just say I might not uh, get an A on it, but let's, let's, let's take, let, let's talk here. Yeah, sure. Well, basically a lot of his ideas are ideas that I've sort of had as well. Um, and it's good to sort of see them voiced by someone that's actually a little more authoritative in the world of, of, of academia. Um, so his, he basically lists three failures and the first is exclusivity. And he says that, um, he has taught, he, he estimates that he's taught fewer than 500 students in total at his eight years as, as a faculty person at Harvard. And well, I would invite him to come to a community college then, because um, frankly, <laughs> I, I and the, well, anyhow, go on. Yes, yeah. Well, basically, um, the I don't know the uh, the 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 recent Stanford course on artificial intelligence had what something like tens of thousands of people, maybe hundreds of thousands of people uh, sign up for the course, and this just sort of shows that you know even from an institution like Stanford. Um, with technology, they can scale a class so that any anyone that wants to take it can take it, and that it, a class size of a hundred thousand, you know, it would just be. Can you imagine you standing up in front of a hundred thousand people lecturing? 
That would just be crazy. <laughs> well, as far as but the lecture is concerned, that that you know, I I see his points here, and um, honestly, his point number one and his point number three are kind of linked to each other. His point number one is about exclusivity in terms of how many students can you reach with a single lecture, and his point number three is about lectures themselves in terms of you know, do people actually have to be in a physical space? Um, and that's true. If a lecture is a one-way stream of communication, then yeah, there's no reason that can't scale. Um, now, I would argue, though, that that's not um, the prime way that uh, education actually happens, or at least um, where learning actually happens, I don't think is just a one-way delivery of content. And so, you know, yes, I have taught in the context of a lecture hall, and if that's the case, you know, whether you have 70 people or 700 people, and I've seen lecture halls with both, um, you know, certainly, maybe there isn't that much difference between them, and why not make it uh, one thousand, one hundred and sixty thousand students that you're that 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 you're getting to, you know, through uh, Udacity or whatever his his model is here. Um, you know, when I'm teaching, I've got thirty seven students in the classroom, and yes, I spend a, a decent chunk of the time talking at them, but I try to make most of my time. In the classroom where students are interacting with me, I'm asking them questions, they're asking me questions, and that doesn't scale to six, to 160,000 people at a time. Um, so I think it really depends on what your, what your baseline model is to start with. Um, I think if you're talking about a large lecture, yes, an online tool can make that obsolete fairly quickly. If you're talking about a more interactive experience, uh, an online delivery system can expedite some of it, but other parts of it um, really aren't replaceable, I don't think, with some of these uh, online delivery tools. It's true that I mean, you, you can interact with the professor. You can say, send them an email and say, you know, at 43 minutes and seven seconds into the lecture, you said that, I don't know, um, uh, price goes up as demand goes up or something like that. Um, and you say, well, what do you mean by that? And then you could have a chance to respond to them. But, oh, absolutely. I mean, and if yeah. I've got 160,000 students, I'm sure I'm going to respond to emails from every single one of them. Well, imagine <laughs> if you could also scale the amount of people that are that are monitoring the email <laughs> as well. Um, and, and also what, 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 uh, what video lectures provide is the ability to create the perfect class, to take years and years of student feedback and from potentially hundreds of thousands of people and then carefully hone down uh, a, a lecture or a series of lectures that are designed to uh, be as clear as possible to present the information in a, in a way that the, the most people are, are capable of understanding it in. Um, and basically all this is, is, is just optimizing uh, to minimize the actual amount of uh sort of feedback or, or, or problems that you're getting. Um, and then maybe have an army of, I don't know, 40 professors, 40 TAs, whatever, um, that are able to respond to student questions or whatever. I, I, I realize that, yes, there is sort of, um, you, you do need a sort of base amount of attention, <laughs> um, that you can give each particular student, but, uh, I think that it, you could definitely more efficiently allocate that if you have a class of a hundred thousand students and a thousand professors or something like that, as opposed to, you know, a thousand classes where there's one student and a hundred, uh, one professor and a hundred students. Yeah. There's probably some economies of scale to be realized that, that that's probably true. 
your your claim of the perfect classroom was quite a bit it, it struck pretty interestingly to me in that the perfect classroom is different things to different people and that's probably the biggest point to make in all of this there's there's a very specific reason why all of these college ads that you see on TV talk about how small their classes are how how much dedicated time an individual can get with a teacher because no one is any more correct than the other. Uh, and what this is, in my opinion, having never been to college, uh, what, what this is, in my opinion, is this is expanding the opportunity for people who don't need that dedicated time and are particularly, you know, better for a subject matter, can get through a topic, prove it, get the credentials to 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 prove it, get the credentials to prove that they did this. And then go out into the world doing what they want to do because they've had passion, motivation, and understanding for the whole course. I mean, of course, the only the only school knowledge I have to leverage is the is my primary schooling. And in high school, I never had a class of more than thirty people. I don't think I even got that close to it. Um, and there were quite a few classes like intro to computers that I would have loved to just go through because I've done it before, and that's the whole premise of testing out of a subject. Um, but this, this iTunes U, these lectures, they are of a very specific use. You can't, you cannot give a hands-on demonstration of any particular topic via a webcast, uh, not effectively. Well, all right. Well, imagine instead of replacing an, uh, an in-person lecture with these virtual lectures, uh, you instead use the virtual lectures as a supplement to say, "All right, if you want to, if you want to learn the material in a lecture format, watch this thing before you come to class, and then in class we're going to discuss it. If you have questions, you can ask." And so you're dedicating the entire time to interacting with particular students, as opposed to having to, you know, blast the material at the people. You know something? I tried that one semester um, for a statistics class that I was teaching. I recorded all the lectures, and um, this was a number of years ago, so they weren't you know they weren't podcast, I guess. But basically, you know, I, I recorded the lectures, had the students watch them outside of class, so that we could make the time in class one hundred percent interactive and not have any lecturing happen in the classroom. And I'm sorry to say it was a complete and total failure, not because the model didn't work, but because the students didn't watch the lectures. And so when they came to class, they were utterly unprepared to do any of the interactive things that we were supposed to do. And so the three students who were prepared for class, um, there wasn't enough of a critical mass to actually do the activity. So I ended up repeating the lectures in class. So the people who watched them were bored and the people who didn't do them were rewarded for not doing the work ahead of time. So clearly there was a paradigm shift that needs to happen. I don't think it's a problem with the model. I think it's a problem with my implementation of it. But I think that there's really something to that in terms of there are pieces of this that can be automated or um, not automated, but recorded and distributed so that the in, the in person parts can uh, be strengthened, but um, his article here, uh, his subject is making universities obsolete. And I don't think this makes universities obsolete. I think the fact that we can distribute large components of it enables the parts that are not obsolete to get much better. And that's um, frankly, I think. Uh, something I could be much more on board with than can we eliminate the university as an institution? I don't 
I don't particularly have any desire to eliminate the university as an institution, but if we can make things available to people who can be self-taught, that's great. And if we can do the self-teaching so that um, the in-person time can be spent doing more interactive things and less... I agree, it's not a good use of in-person time to have people sitting there and being lectured to in a large group where it's too big for them to ask questions anyways, and so what's the point? I, I think that despite his you know uh, provocative title, I don't think he necessarily is trying to argue for the elimination of the university wholly and completely, just certain aspects of it that don't necessarily have to remain the way they are because we have technology now. Like, for like example, lecture halls. Like, like lecture halls. Uh, or uh, in his uh, failure number two, he mentions the 12 to 13 week semester. Well, like Jason said, imagine that someone really likes a topic and really can can blast through it and, and, and get through it in like four weeks. Why not just uh, let him do that, give him the credit for taking the class, and then move on to the next topic? Whereas some someone may, you know, get eight weeks in and then, I don't know, something happens for whatever reason, and they are uh, unable to finish. Well, let them just pick pick right up where they left off. I mean, why, why say, Oh, well, guess you have to, to retake the entire thing next semester. Why not, why not just let them continue where they left off? So I think that there's, there's certainly, certainly um, some aspects of the university that are beneficial to keep, but I think that there are a lot of sort of things that are, that are perpetuated that don't necessarily have to be given uh, the, the, the technology available nowadays. I think there's probably a lot to that, um, you know, and um, uh, this uh, Matt Wells, she's talking about uh, how grades are, are a failure here. And, um, you know, the point isn't just, you know, after 15 weeks, how well have you learned it as opposed to, um, you know, the, I think the real question is, what does it take for you to learn what you need to learn from this class? And so the question isn't, what fraction of it did you learn in 15 weeks? It's, you take as much time as you need, whether that's four weeks or 32 weeks, and once you've learned it, you get credit for that and you move on to the next thing. And, right, exactly. Um, you know, that doesn't work well if the the core unit here is the lecture unit, and if you get behind or ahead, then you, can, you can't get them anymore. Um, but on the other hand, um, on the other hand, there is some, you know, this isn't just completely individualized. Uh, there is, there's, if there's some value to interaction and talking about the subject with other people and doing you know group projects or engaging in discussions with people, presumably there'd have to be at least some cohort working at a similar pace to you. And again, if you fall behind a cohort or get ahead of a cohort, I don't see any reason why people couldn't be adjusted. But um, to have it be completely individualized, I think, frankly, a lot of learning is by its very nature communal. And to make it be completely about the individual interacting with... Um, interacting with you know this website um can miss the point on some of this but i don't know maybe i'm maybe i'm missing something here i I do agree though that uh absolutely the goal of every course should be that every student when they complete the course whenever that is they have mastered the learning objectives for the course and so you know he says shouldn't the goal of every course to be to be to get every student to the point of making an a plus and i'd argue Yes, that should we should we should be aiming for proficiency in the things that we're trying to teach, and either you get there or you don't get there. And if you don't get there and you need to, you keep trying at it. That that sure strikes me as a good idea. 
the only, and I think this is a point he makes in the article, grades are used by, if, if it's a high school uh, situation, grades are used by colleges for admission. And if it's a college grade by uh, workplaces for, for evaluating a job application. And I think there is, you know, time, time is definitely, it, it shouldn't be the limiting factor. But I think, um, I guess the system of, of having a grade or a GPA is kind of a, a sliding scale of how much you've mastered the material. And I think we do lose something if we turn it into a credit, no credit thing. There is, well, there is Im- some... Imagine, imagine a situation where uh, you complete the basic requirements for a class and the basic understanding and you're given a C. And then you say, and then the, the university says, well, now you have credit for taking this class, but... Uh, you have the option to continue to um, improve in this same topic and the the ability to improve your grade. So instead of, again, retaking a class to get a better grade, you just continue working on that same, in, in that same groove and, and um, it will, it will show the, the, the grade that you get is not necessarily an, an indication of how much you've learned in 13 weeks. It's, uh, just an overall indication of how thoroughly you've mastered the material. Yeah, and I, to take that a step further, I'd even say, what if you had multiple sets of outcomes so that these are what we would now consider the C-level outcomes, you know, so that in order to be considered having a passing level of this, you need to be able to do this, 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 and this when you're done with the course, right? And if that's all you want to move on to the next one, then that you, know, you get C-level certification, right? But if you say, well, no, I want to be able to demonstrate to potential employers, to colleges, to whomever it is I'm trying to convince that I have better than C-level certification, then you say, okay, so I'm trying, so you need to accomplish this, 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 and this in addition to the C-level stuff, and then you have B-level certification, right? And you want to be better than that, then you, then you say, okay, so you can apply it in this context and this context and do this kind of project and submit that for evaluation and you do that and it meets the standards then you have a level accomplishment in this course and presumably to move on to the next topic you might need C level certification but whatever level is the level that you go for either you can attain it or you can't attain it and that's what gets documented to your potential employers and everybody else I think that would be a very effective system all right, so when I rule the world and completely rewrite the education system of the world, then um, we're all set. <laughs> all right. Grades are meaningful again. Apple, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, like I said, our, our topic was technology and education, not necessarily Apple and education. And I do think it's it's a very interesting topic to, to sort of figure, to, to sort of mull about uh, how these these breakthroughs that have been made in, in um in technology and communication uh, can be applied in the in the classroom. This whole all of those all of those points just now reminded me of two things that I I I'm very very torn on on what my feelings for the the choice to do that kind of thing are. The first one is that I had I believe it was my fifth grade teacher that. At the start of the week, you would get a menu, and it was called a menu. It was a menu of items you had to complete in a week. If you did everything on the menu, you got a C. Because according to the report cards, at least in my school on the back, uh, you if you finish your work, the, the average case, if you finish your work on time and satisfactorily, you are average and you get a C. The only way to get a B or, or an A are to do extra credit, which were notably extracurriculars outside of school. 
I came very close to failing that class. Uh, there were a couple times I was sitting outside the principal's office, and it was just kind of one of those, you know, we need to sit you down with your parents, your, your grade in this class is unacceptable, and we don't want you to fail, one of those kind of things. And for being as young as I was, then that really hurt. And I've, I have never heard of a class like that, ever. Uh, and it was it was hard. I, I'm the kind of person that, in most cases, if you're you know if you're dedicated to doing something, if you're paying to do something and have a window of time to do it, i.e., school, you do it there, and I- anything you do outside is your own choice. Um, and I'll say that I have the same feelings for that for work. Although it's funny considering I'm a sysadmin and on call is not a foreign concept to me. Um, but that, and then I know, I remember when I was job searching that I've seen, uh, I've seen jobs that require GPA levels, not just, not just graduation of a certain topic at a certain level, but they actually want to know your GPA as well. And those jobs sounded boring. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, it's this whole, it's this whole paradigm of, uh, of things that are so educationally geared as opposed to what I think a lot of these proposals and Matt's article chiefly is for this different generation of people. It, this is for those kids that are Nathan's age or, you know, that are still in high school and they're already starting to make a living by writing apps for any modern platform nowadays. And they want to have uh, institutions, professors, anybody wants to have a mechanism to continue to teach those kids what they want to know. It is all about an extra option instead of plugging through uh, uh, college-level prerequisites like social studies and English and high-level math and not just the thing that you're really interested in and you'll be really good at modern programming languages, Objective-C and Java if you're doing the Android track, anything of the sort. Yeah, by by the way, I can't... uh, I want to take this full circle and I can't believe I didn't think about this until literally like five minutes ago, but I think... Uh, Stack Exchange and Ask Different, well, not necessarily Ask Different, but Stack Exchange, some of the more academic sites of Stack Exchange, um, are a perfect example of how uh, people can collaborate and and learn collectively um, without necessarily have to having to reside in the same same room. So someone can ask a question about economics on the Economic Stack Exchange, you know, assuming it was actually successful, um, and get an answer from someone else that's studying some other part of economics, then they can ask a question, then get an answer from someone else. And if you had one of these for say every single class, then you could really, you could, you could get a, a collaborative sort of environment, uh, over the internet. Yeah. It's, it's all about the medium and it's all about the person. I'm, I, I, I will, not having not really living in the same area as you guys i don't know how what your habits are how you guys work and i won't profess to say that my way is the only way and yours isn't either but there are you know the subjects the subjects that i was interested in i fly through i do extracurriculars i go above and beyond i do these extra things because i like them and my 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 mind and focus and everything else places emphasis on this but core classes my my grades in school were terrible. <laughs> Core classes that weren't particularly engaging or interesting with respect to my interests, I did what I needed to do to get by, and I definitely was not a straight-A student. 
Well, every single one of us is someone who volunteers an absurd amount of our time answering people's questions <laughs> about computers, right? And I we mean, have the reputation to prove it. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly. Um, and at the same time, somehow we all manage to eat food. So either there's somebody, you know, parents or whatever who has a job or, you know, we do something that earns money so that um, we're able to have the time to do this sort of thing. And, you know, as a professional educator, I'd, I would hate to see Stack Exchange displace or, you know, any of these online distribution systems displace my ability to actually earn a living teaching people. But at the same time, I'm also delighted to see more ways for people to learn, having spent the overwhelming majority of my life in a classroom on one side of the desk or the other. If something like this were to take off and the internet was the new medium for school, probably you know outside of primary education, thinking log- thinking realistically, um, if something were to happen that community colleges, public schools at large were, were going to just go by the wayside, why would you not move onto internet productions of coursework or you know internet interactivity, anything educational, but online instead of in person? Why would I not do that? Well, in the case of Stack Exchange, because nobody gets paid for it. But in theory, if these if these mediums exist, you can get you can become employed by somebody that produces professional education productions. Sure, and if that's where the jobs are, absolutely. I'm just saying, if the model is entirely a volunteer-driven thing like Stack Exchange, I'm thrilled to volunteer my time answering questions about computers. I didn't sign up. Um, there was a proposal in my field. Okay, I have to check economics. There was a proposal in my field, and I didn't realize, Kyle, that you were the one behind it, actually. But <laughs> and um, and um, in chat a while ago, you tried to talk me into uh, into joining it, and uh, I'm actually quite wary to. Um, you know, volunteer to do for free what I count on earning a living at because it kind of undermines my ability to earn a living, you know, and I I, yeah. I, I, I like teaching people a lot, but I'm also kind of fond of eating. And I'm not <laughs> saying I'm not saying a medium like Stack Exchange, absolutely by no means um, that there, there there's basically the same thing that newspapers are going through right now. Newspapers are dying, Internet blogging is growing, so on and so forth. Even if one medium is closed down, that there is a replacement somewhere for the people who really want to continue doing it. And, you know, it, it'll it'll take a little bit. It'll suck. It always does. But there'll be an opportunity to make a good living doing it. There's probably something to that. I mean, you look at you know, the John Grubers of the world and that sort of thing. And are there people making a living as tech journalists, even as you know, compu- as computers are laying people off, newspapers are laying people off left and right, and that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and uh, you know, Gruber says he thinks of himself primarily as a columnist, and it just happens that his medium is you know a weblog, but that's not. What he, he doesn't think of himself as a blogger. He thinks of himself as a columnist, right? Mm-hmm. And in another day and age, he would have written his column in a newspaper or a magazine or something. But because of technology, this is what he does. And, you know, just doing the multiplication on what it costs to sponsor Daring Fireball multiplied by the number of the weeks of, ye- of the year, I think clearly he does pretty well for himself at this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, does that mean that there's room for everyone to be a giant grouper? Of course not. But, you know... It's all good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 not something that we can drive a direct answer to, and it's not something that you know there's there's a solid path to. But for 
uh, and, and I really hate to say it this way, but for savvy individuals, they'll if if another opportunity presents itself, they'll recognize it and they will jump on that. Uh, it kind of it would more than likely suck for people that have been uh, edu- educators for life and don't aren't necessarily doing that in a technological form, but. You, you, you have to think that opportunities are going to be there. Like people, all of, for all of the technology we can throw at this, we still need, you know, classic educators. We still need subject matter experts. We still need the knowledge that these people can provide. And they can be hired in such a role and somebody else can do the technological work they don't understand for them. They just, they need to be there to provide the content and somebody has to put all of this together. And depending on the scale of the of the application, it can be, a one or a few man operation and it can turn into a, a digital college. All right. Well, speaking of technology in education, our app of the week is OmniGraph Sketcher. And Daniel, you actually use this quite a bit. Why don't you tell us about it? All right. Well, OmniGraph Sketcher is kind of specialized. I imagine if you are uh, studying English literature, you probably don't have a lot of use for it directly. But OmniGraph Sketcher is this really neat app from our good uh, from the good folks at the Omni Group um, that enables you to very easily produce graphs of various sorts. And as I uh, teach economics, it works very well for supply and demand graphs and other such things, production possibilities, frontiers, and that sort of thing. And um, you know, I've always thought, gosh, there should just be an app that makes it really easy to draw these curves and label them and draw dotted lines connecting the sorts of things and to shade in areas and all that, that just works. And in the grandest tradition of Mac apps, it just works. Um, it, uh, you draw lines and everything works pretty much the way you'd expect it would. And then you want to shade in a particular area and you click on the fill tool and you click the corners and it fills following curves appropriately. And then if you move one of the lines around, the fill moves so that it goes with the line and it all kind of works the way you'd hope it would. And, uh, I find it very helpful for producing slides, for, uh, producing, uh, exam questions, all that sort of thing. It, um, it's... It's a wonderful little tool. This is one of those things that never fails to remind me of how important tailored apps really are because you could produce this in OmniGraphle, another Omni Group product. You could produce this in DIA, which is a DIA, which is a cross-platform graphing charting tool. And there's or you, could you, use you can Microsoft you can produce Word, graphs like on I Photoshop. <laughs> But this is one, yeah. This is one of those things that just makes the use case so specific and so good that, yeah, it's going to have a smaller base. But the smaller base is going to refer to other individuals in that same profession, and they will they will love it. Yeah, one of the huge annoyances um, in in trying to take notes for a class on a computer is that really all you can do is, for the most part, is text entry. It's kind of a, a cruel twist of fate that in the computer science and programming areas that a lot of the stuff that you have to take down is, you know, is is diagrams and graphs and, and, and charts and code and all. It's just tons of stuff that doesn't really fit well into the type of bunch of text and, and maybe an outline. And I, I have to say that specifically economics I wish I had this when I was taking economics <laughs> because you do not want to know what I what I had to do to uh to accomplish my goal of actually taking notes on my computer in class. It was not fun. 
So <laughs> if you are an economic student or if you think you might know an economic student, let them know about this app. It's uh, 30 bucks from the Omni Group. Um, and it, I think that's the regular price. Is, it, uh, is there an educational price on this? Uh, yes, in fact, there is. $19.99. So 20 bucks. So yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Pretty good deal. Indeed. Is there a trial or anything to, to test it out? There is a 14-day trial that you can get. Um, and uh, you download it, and it runs for free for 14 days, and then it asks you for a license code. All right. Links to this and everything else, uh, as usual, in our show notes. Yes. Well, I, I, Daniel, I just want to thank you again for being on the show. and It's been fun. And I'm, and I'm really glad we were able to... Um, sort of pick your brain on on education because it's it's always sort of interesting to um, find out what things are like on the other side of the desk. You know what I mean? <laughs> For the people that are actually trying to educate, as opposed to the people that are supposedly being educated. Um, <laughs> and I think we had a really good discussion about uh, about the role of technology in that. Uh, as usual, you can find all of us on Ask Different, and we do our best to be in chat as often as possible. If you have any questions, ask there, and certainly the community can help out as much as possible. This has been the Ask Different Podcast. You can find our show in most podcast apps by searching for Ask Different Podcast. Uh, the direct RSS link and show notes for this and all of our episodes are at apple.blogoverflow.com. Obviously, you can reach us anywhere on Ask Different or at podcast at askdifferent.net. Thanks for listening.